The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Opus Energy Insights on Barron's Live. I'm Denton Sigurano, Chief Oil Analyst at Opus, a Dow Jones company. And joining me today is my colleague and our global head of oil, uh, energy analysis, I should say, uh, Tom Closa. Welcome back, Tom. Great to have you again. Thanks. So the hurricane season officially began on, on June 1st, and forecasters are calling for a quote-unquote near-normal hurricane season. Uh, 2022 was also a near-normal season, but saw one of the most devastating hurricanes that we've seen in quite some time in southwest Florida. Uh, and already in 2023, we've had a couple of, of named storms stormed already. So I just want to offer a, a quick caveat as well. Uh, while we're talking about hurricanes, we're not trying to minimize any sort of damage or uh, unfortunate loss of human life. We're just talking about this in the context of how it affects oil markets and refinery operations, et cetera. So, but as we head into the peak hurricane season months, Tom, and the end of the first half of the year and the end of the second quarter, only have a quick look or give us a quick lowdown on U.S. gasoline and diesel markets, you know, as we get into the second half of the year. Well, sure. I, I mean, right now we're starting the second half of the year with crude oil prices much lower than they were last year. And the margins for gasoline and diesel uh, are about $5 per barrel lower than they were last year. But there's still, or excuse me, they're about $5 above where they were in 2019, but they're quite a bit behind last year. But last year was epic and off the charts. So we couldn't imagine that that would continue this year. Uh, you know, the consensus view is that crude oil prices are going to move higher in the second half of the year. And a consensus view is probably that El Nino conditions mean that we'll have fewer Atlantic storms. The problem is Gulf of Mexico is 90 degrees. Uh, I was in Fort Myers last year when uh, the Category 5 came ashore. Uh, now, most hurricanes destroy demand. Almost all of them do destroy some demand. And it's the occasional hurricane that destroys supply that we have to worry about. And that's a real wild card coming into this season because the Gulf of Mexico is already 90 degrees, several degrees warmer than it would normally be. And it only takes one storm. You know, if you think back to Hurricane Ida, Hurricane Harvey, uh, and certainly Hurricane Katrina back in 2005, it only takes one storm in the Gulf of Mexico. And it only takes the threat as opposed to the uh, landfall to really impact uh, oil and gas prices. Sure. And you already kind of kind of did that, you know, kind of separating the, the 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 category of the storm, if you will. And I'm not talking about category one, two, three, et cetera. I'm talking more about a supply destroyer versus a demand destroyer. Uh, like you said, they all tend to destroy at least a little bit of demand, but it's still ones like Harvey, like Ida, uh, Rita, Katrina, et cetera, that that destroy supply as well. So um I just want to make sure we, we we kind of categorize them in that way, the demand destroyers versus supply destroyers. Yeah, and we 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 are much much more dependent 
on refineries in the coasts and coastal Texas and coastal Louisiana than we were. I mean, you know, if you look at the difference, we've added about a million and a half barrels a day of refining in coastal Texas since Katrina came ashore. And it makes sense because that's where you receive crude and that's where you can ship out products uh, to export as well as, you know, occasionally on American flag vessel. So, you know, the good news is we've got a lot of extra refining capacity. We have about a half a million barrels of refining capability at the Gulf Coast that's in the pocket that hasn't been uh, activated so far because of different issues. That's the good news. The bad news is if you get a probability cone anywhere between Corpus Christi and Pascagoula, Mississippi, you're going to see prices firm. <laughs> and, look, you know, like you said, so total refining capacity in those four states, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, uh, pushing 10 million barrels a day. So it's not an insignificant amount of, of refining capacity. It's actually, you know, kind of more than half the, of the available capacity in the United States. Um, yeah, I mean, we're much more dependent on Texas and Louisiana. It's kind of the old George Bush, don't mess with Texas uh, saying really goes for refinery capability here. So you've already mentioned some of the, you know, kind of more significant named storms over the past, you know, well, almost 20 years now. Uh, since Hurricane Katrina, but also Hurricane Rita and Harvey especially uh, come to mind. But since Katrina in, in 2005, you know, what have refiners done to kind of safeguard against their facilities against some of these larger storms that are about to make landfall? Well, I think the primary concern for the refiners, uh, I mean, one of the main major concerns is wind damage and storm damage or, or rain. And some of them have certainly buffered up the retaining walls and, and whatever. Um, what they've also done, and this is really subsequent to, to Katrina, is they've uh, engaged or they've activated cogeneration. Uh, because the biggest problem is if a storm makes landfall in Texas or Louisiana and it knocks out the electrical grid. You cannot run refineries without electricity and steam. And, you know, the, the electricity got knocked out for a lot of refineries back in 2005. And then again, probably with Ike and Gustav in 2008, and then uh, with uh, Ida as recently as a couple of years ago. So they've, they've strengthened some of the uh, artifices that protect the equipment, but they can't do everything. And I mean, if you get a category three, four or five storm coming across a Corpus or Port Arthur or Beaumont or New Orleans, you're going to have problems and you're going to have down refinery time. The one thing I would stress too, is that the United States has become much more of just in-time inventory management. You know, earlier uh, last year, we saw some uh, lines in Fort Lauderdale when they had 20 inches of rain. And we've seen that in California sometimes or when the colonial pipeline gets knocked out. We've increased their population and we've increased refining capacity, but we don't have as much capacity per person as we used to. So it's it's much more uh, wide open. And the other big, huge variable compared to 2005, 18 years ago with Katrina is we now export about 1.2 million barrels of diesel every day, and we export about 900,000 barrels a day of gasoline. And there's no rule that says you have to divert 
product to United States citizens should you have hurricane impacts at the Gulf Coast. So there is the potential for an existential sort of crisis of capitalism there. Mm. Okay, so it is also right around 1210. So I want to remind the audience, you could submit questions right now in the in the Q&A uh, section of, of, of the of the of the video cast here. So, so uh, like we like we've been discussing most of that new refining capacity additions, really, if not all of them have been on that on the Texas Gulf Coast, you know, obviously, you, you've talked about how it has left the, the, the US markets a little bit susceptible uh, to to a strong storm. Uh, but if we do see some damage, what happens? Like, are, are some of those companies going to decide? What are the, what's the decision-making process on, on repairs? Well, the decision-making process on repairs, I think for most of the coastal real estate, is that they'll, they'll uh, refurbish it. Although, I think it was in 2021, Hurricane Ida knocked out the uh, Phillips refinery up Bell Chase, Louisiana. And there was just too much damage there. You know, ultimately, uh, we have to reckon with the fact that there are going to be a lot of stranded assets in U.S. refining over the rest of the decade. I mean, we are going to hit a million electric vehicles probably later this year or this winter, and that displaces a lot of demand for fuels. So uh, I would probably submit that if we had major impacts in Corpus Christi or in New Orleans, Port Arthur, Beaumont, in Baytown, that stuff will be uh, refurbished or they'll have a renaissance. But you can have some that are on the fence where it'll be like, well, it's just not worth it to uh, to fix it. Back in 1983, I'm going to date myself here, but you actually had a hurricane, Alicia, came up the Houston Ship Channel and it knocked out all sorts of things. But fortunately, it was only a category one or two storm. And if that were repeated, you know, you might see an asset like the Lyondell refinery where they've uh, agreed to continue to refine product right. into early 2025. That might get down for the count if it gets damaged in a storm. So there's a lot at stake here. There really is. Okay. So uh, you did mention a little bit of, uh, about it, so, but the U.S. has become really a critical exporter, a supplier to the world. Uh, with 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 crude oil exports in the you know depending on the week or month you know anywhere from three to five million barrels a day, when you total up gasoline and diesel, it's close to two million barrels a day. Uh, a lot of that has been going to you know Latin America. You know what's the impact on those exports if if there is some sort of storm? Well, I, I'd separate it on the crude oil side first. I mean, the biggest export terminal and where most of the loadings for exports are done is out of Corpus Christi. Mm -hmm. And ostensibly, if you had storm impacts there, you might actually have uh, some weather-bound conditions for cargoes of crude oil that would otherwise go offshore. Now, the refined products are coming really virtually out of every uh, refining center at the Gulf Coast. And the reason for it is quite simple. It's if you used to watch the old uh, uh, Meet the Press years ago, ADM was was always advertising as grocery to the world or grocer or supermarket to the world, and we've uh, essentially become the refined product supplier to the world. And the world for us is mostly Latin America. Latin American population continues to increase. Their refining capacity was about 6.6 .6 million barrels a day a decade ago. Now it's only about 4.4. And that's because uh, Peta Vesa 
which has probably over a million barrels a day of refining capability, is incapable of operating at 20% of utilization. And then you have other refineries that used to exist in the Virgin Islands, in Puerto Rico, in Curaçao, in Trinidad, and they're idle with no chance of them uh, coming up. So we need to be the supplier of first resort for most of Latin America, and that's going to continue and be accentuated in the next few years. And it's certainly going to be a feature this summer. And again, it leads to that existential sort of question about capitalism. If you've got Latin American buyers willing to pay a little bit more for gasoline than you can sell it out in the U.S., be careful of what can happen. And this administration is obsessed, I would say, on the price of gasoline. And they might really threaten to curb exports should that existential crisis come about. Okay. And, uh, you know, also probably besides those Latin American refineries that are and Caribbean refineries that are idled, you know, Mexico continues to have good days and bad days when it comes to operating refineries as well. We should probably add that as well. So you did mention the White House and, and you know, obviously they're, they're hell-bent on, you know, retail gasoline prices and oil prices, et cetera. You know, what kind of tools do they have in the, in the, in the shed, so to speak, uh, to combat some of these? You, you kind of mentioned about, uh, you know, kind of restricting exports a little bit. You know, can they do that? And, and what other kind of tools might they have at their disposal should we have a cluster of Gulf Coast refineries down for weeks, months, et cetera? Well, I, I mean, they have a pretty limited toolbox. There's no strategic stocks of gasoline or distillate. You know, someone could be a stickler and say there is something in the Northeast, but really there, there's nothing of any kind of significance out there. There's the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and a lot of crude oil there. And really, when you get hurricanes, you'll get some release of that if the Louisiana offshore oil port is knocked out or some other infrastructure is knocked out. And then that gets replaced uh, years later. The biggest tool they have is probably something they might use in August. It, uh, you know, the formula for gasoline changes on September 15th. And you can put ingredients in there that are fairly cheap, like butane and some other things. And it's a, you can make a lot more gasoline that's winter or autumn blend than you can make summer grade. So they have the ability to utilize waivers, but it conflicts with really the White House's perception of, you know, they want to pursue environmental justice. And environmental justice means you're not going to necessarily compromise a lot of environmental regulations unless you absolutely have to. Now, you also have uh, the latitude to allow for foreign tankers to take product from the Gulf Coast up to the Northeast should, for example, there be an interruption in the colonial pipeline supplies uh, or some other issues out there. But it's a pretty limited toolbox that they have. I would say, you know, although I raised the the specter of uh, trying to suppress exports. I think that's a last resort. That would be something that would only happen under the most desperate of circumstances where four fifty dollars or $5 gas prices were likely. And I don't see that necessarily happening because right now there's quite a bit of profit baked into the prices for gasoline. And we're only about a month or so away from when refiners change the formula and they can make more gasoline by running the same amount of crude. 
Right, right. And, uh, you know, and again, you mentioned foreign tankers going from the Gulf Coast to, to the Northeast. That would be that would uh, require waiving the Jones Act, which is something we don't see really ever. Right. I, I think the Jones Act is about as sacred a cow in the U.S. Uh, <laughs> uh, system as, as you can find out there. You, mm-hmm. you might as well want to uh, change the flag and put some rainbow colors in it right now. Just not going to happen. And you'll have an occasional waiver for the Jones Act, but that's about it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, okay. So you talked about, you know, some of the things and and wanted to talk about, you know, timing of hurricanes a little bit here. So is there a more optimal time, a more painful time to have uh, a a refinery go down due to a hurricane? Is it, is it July? Is it September? Is it later than that? Is it earlier than that? You know, earlier a little bit. The earlier the storms arrive, the more impact. I mean, we've got about six weeks or more of manufacturing summer gasoline and having demand that might be about 9.3 or 9.5 million barrels a day. So, you know, you might have 22 or 23 days supply in the summertime. And then it turns around and you see lower demand in the last third of the year and you have a, a more... Uh, a liberal formula of what you can put into your gasoline. So the earlier the storms impact, uh, the more dramatic. You get storms after September 15th, for example, you're you're looking at the, uh, the decline in gasoline demand, and you're looking at the ability of loading it, the molecules up with some cheap molecules from butane and natural gasoline, pentanes plus, and some other things. Uh, and that means you can import a lot more of that uh, winter spec gasoline from offshore as well. So July and August, that's really where we have to have our fingers crossed, those two months. Gotcha. And, and what you're talking about is, you know, kind of later in the hurricane season, late August, early September, mid-September. That's when you could, the, the government, the EPA could could issue an RVP waiver on Correct. the gasoline specifications. So. Correct. They can say that it's not September 15th, but we're going to treat the gasoline formula as though it is September 15th, even though it's August 15th. I might mention that, you know, diesel is a problem too. Diesel prices are still quite high when compared to crude oil. And, you know, we, we've typically built our diesel stocks or our distillate stocks in uh, spring and summer to contend with uh, winters. And, you know, last year, of course, was the winter that wasn't. We don't have the infrastructure to build that much in terms of diesel supplies. And there's still an open question about whether Europe is gonna be a little bit short of diesel if some of the uh, sanctions on Russia start to uh, have some impact. So, um, and you mentioned uh, Hurricane Rita you know, which came after Katrina, I think about 60 days, that one really sent the price of diesel skyrocketing. And that's something you have to watch because that's the product that comes into season in the last third of the year while gasoline goes out of season. Right, right. So, okay, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, obviously the Gulf Coast, but, you know, if there is uh, damage and and downtime of, of weeks or, you know, in the worst case scenario, months, what does that mean for more of the inland refineries, uh, you know, in the Chicago area, in the Midwest, and also those those refineries that are on the East Coast in, in, in New Jersey and Delaware? Well, the United States, we've lost northeastern capacity, not just uh, 
you know, in the Northeast with the Philadelphia Energy Solutions Refinery and some other plants that operated 20 years ago. We also have lost uh, the Canadian Maritimes contribution from Come By Chance, which is going to be making renewable diesel. So that's an area that's susceptible to price shocks. And of course, the somewhat dependent on European gasoline and really all the merchant cargoes that go into the North Atlantic. The Midwest gets quite a bit of product from the Gulf Coast. And, you know, you've probably heard this before, but if you're purely a Midwest refinery and you hear about uh, hurricane impacts at the Gulf Coast, it probably fortifies your share price to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a, a capitalist game of, of schadenfreude here where it's like, well, I hope that uh, hurricanes don't hurt anybody, but they knock out some refining capacity here. So we're going to get a little bit more for our barrels there. Uh, but everywhere is dependent on it. I would say the one area that's not too dependent on it, but tends to be a little bit shy of real ample supplies these days is the West Coast uh, because of supply and uh, a lack of refining and the Rocky Mountains because of demand. It's the one part of the country this year which is showing the greatest year-on-year -year consumption. So, okay, so now let's take a look at the other side of the scenario. We get through hurricane season, nothing. We get, we get into September, there's been no hurricanes or nothing entering the Gulf of Mexico, let's say. Uh, nothing gets on shore. Uh, we get through, through the season unscathed. You know, how do prices react to that? Well, if you look at prices right now, the market is suggesting that Gulf Coast gasoline, you know, conventional uh, blends and reformulated blends are going to be at less than $2 a gallon by the end of the year. Because we've seen in the last few years that you can always buy it at considerably under uh, the price on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for Arbot. So the market in the forward market is anticipating that we're going to uh, drop appreciably. I would say it may be uh, probably overstating that likely drop because there's a consensus view that maybe crude oil prices will be five to seven dollars and fifty cents higher in the second half of the year than where they've been recently. Uh, but gasoline cracks, which is to say the margin of gasoline over the price of crude. Uh, right now, there's probably uh, some some possibilities or probabilities of, of hurricane impacts that are baked into it. But if we go up 500,000 barrels a day on refinery runs at the Gulf Coast and we see the normal demand patterns, we're going to have plenty of gasoline when we get to September, October, November. Okay. And, and gasoline's obviously the, the big one, but uh, any impact on it uh, that you see on diesel from, from that? I mean, we'll well, be I think diesel, the diesel, yeah, I think diesel, diesel might catch a bid much more mm -hmm. quickly than gasoline will because it does come into season. And, right. you know, we saw last year, well, we saw last year where it was a hundred dollars a barrel more for diesel <laughs> than crude oil at some points. But even as we ushered in 2023, it was about a $50 difference between diesel and crude. And I don't think we're going to necessarily go back to those overshoots that we saw uh, in uh, 2022, but it's going to be difficult to really inspire a lot of sellers in, in diesel and perhaps in jet fuel as well. Okay. So you did mention Hurricane Alicia back in 1983, I believe you said. Right. Give us your recollection of some of the more 
impactful historical ones. I mean, you, you kind of touched on them a little bit here and there, you know, just to, you know, just uh, go back into the memory bank, which I, I know is, uh, is vast. And, uh, you know, works <laughs> well, I can't really go well, back you know? to, I can't go back to the great Galveston hurricane That's okay, before fair. my time <laughs> or the Epic of Gilgamesh, but I can tell you that, you know, I, I've been looking at it in terms of El Nino years. This is supposed to be an El Nino year. Uh, and I grew up with quick draw McGraw. So I like to talk about it could be an El Caban year where if we get a hurricane, it could really Caban the consumer. But I look back at it in 1997 and 1998 were mild El Nino years. We actually had a hurricane that came ashore. I think it might have been in uh, Pascagoula where they found, found an alligator in the control room. So uh, we've seen that. I, I couldn't find necessarily, necessarily the correlation between El Nino and La Nina years and big hurricanes. And I think that's the bottom line. You could have a year where there's only six named storms, but if you get only one named storm and it's like Katrina mm-hmm. or it's like Hurricane Harvey, uh, things can go very berserk. I, you know, this is mostly just a figure of speech, but I've looked at the calculus from time to time and I said, take whatever category the storm is. And let's say it's hitting, it's due to hit a refined uh, product cluster. Take the category and cube it. And that's the possible impact you could have, which is to say a category three storm that's, you know, flirting with Beaumont or Port Arthur could have a 27 cent impact on gasoline prices very quickly. Seems like a pretty good formula there. So I never. Uh, I don't think it's going to be going up there with the Pythagorean theorem. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not very scientific, but, you know, it seems like one that would make some sense, especially in light of some of these, you know, kind of more impactful storms. I think back to to Hurricane Harvey and how that hit Houston, went inland, kind of came back and just kind of camped out over, over the Houston area for what, another five, six days. Harvey was Harvey was similar to like the cartoons for Roadrunner, where before he would fall down, it would pause. And it was like the storm came ashore at Corpus, then it kind of went offshore, got strengthened up a little bit and came into Houston. And then when it finished with Houston, it said, let's go to Beaumont and Baytown and Port <laughs> Arthur and wreak havoc there. It really was cartoonish from a fiendish point of view. Yeah, well, we've already mentioned Quick Grow McGraw. We've mentioned the Road Runner. Maybe we could do an Opus uh, Energy Insights on on just on cartoons. Uh, all all of my can. references come from Hanna Barbera. There you go. There you go. So, I uh, do have a couple of questions here that that I'd like to to get to before we kind of wrap up here. But this is this is you know I think a more a historical one. So, Katie asks, who decided building refineries near coastlines was a good idea anyway? Well, it's a good idea because you have access to to foreign crude, uh, and that was really the genesis of many of them that had the access, you know, when we were importing a lot more crude than we were exporting. And you you have the ability to load those vessels. I mean, originally it was done for domestic demand, but we've morphed in the last 10 years into this tremendous export nation. And I could see down the line where we're going to be exporting well over a million barrels a day, million barrels a day of gasoline and diesel to Latin America because Latin America needs it. And they're not going to get it necessarily from the expansions in um, Southeast Asia or in the Middle East. They need a lot more than that. Right. Right. So 
Uh, one other question from, from Elliot. How does the shutdown of convent and reduced Louisiana capacity affect the broader tropical weather risk exposure equation? Well, that's that happens to be a shutdown, but uh, Louisiana is still more susceptible to hurricane impacts than it was years ago. You know, losing Bell Chase, which I guess some people would have called Alliance Louisiana, hurt as well. So it swings the pendulum a little bit more towards Texas and Texas Gulf and a little bit less for Louisiana. And now it looks like lower Louisiana has become kind of a, a staging area to put uh, renewable diesel together, uh, as you know, the feedstocks and the processing of it. So that'll be something we watch in the, in the, the future as well. And you, you mentioned Bell Chase and, you know, obviously the damage from, from Hurricane Ida in, in 2021 was, 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 was too great. So Phillips 66 decided to not repair it. And it's an import-export ter terminal now, correct? Right, right. It's it's going to be a terminal for staging exports and imports, correct? Okay, great. So uh, I believe that's all the time we have. Uh, Barron's Live will be off on Monday and Tuesday in observance of the 4th of July holiday, but we'll be back on Wednesday, July 5th. And then join us again on Wednesday when MarketWatch personal finance reporter Andrew Kirshner will speak with Deputy Enterprise Editor Jillian Berman on what borrowers need to know about their student loans after the Supreme Court decision on the Biden administration's loan forgiveness plan that we just saw earlier today. I want to thank you all for joining us today. I want everyone to have a great weekend, a great 4th of July holiday, a happy and safe one, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.